going. It's titled Marriage and Divorce Part 1. And we're looking at Matthew, the beginning of chapter 19 of the book of Matthew. As we saw last week, Jesus had just finished a very pointed discussion with a parable regarding God's command for all believers to forgive really anyone and everyone who has sinned or offended them. And as we noted last week, this was not a suggestion, but a clear command reiterated multiple times by Jesus during his earthly ministry. We must obey our Lord and forgive others. Otherwise, we're guilty of the sin of unforgiveness that requires confession and repentance. It's a very serious sin. And as I mentioned last week, the sin of unforgiveness and the sin of gossip are probably the two most dominant sins of the church. They're the kind of sins that people in the church, for some reason, think it's okay. They don't really understand that they're offending God. When they practice unforgiveness, when they practice gossip. And by the way, you won't find many, really, if any, times in the Bible when God asks or suggests anything. No, when, when God gives direction or instruction, it's in the form of a command. I believe we'll find this true in our prayers as well. We might say things like, well, God asked me to do this and that. But no, he didn't ask you. He told you and he told me to do various things. And whether or not we do them is whether or not we're going to obey him. Anyway, after Jesus' very important teaching on forgiveness, he and his disciples left Galilee heading south and he worked his way towards Jerusalem. So we'll look at the first couple of verses of chapter 19. And we're told, now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. As we see here, Jesus didn't go directly south, but first he went east from the Galilee region to the east side of the Jordan River. And then he went south along that side of the river, really through the land of Perea. And this was the most common route that was taken by the Jews of that time to travel from the Galilean points north, south to Jerusalem and Judea, 
and vice versa. We also see that Jesus wasn't traveling alone, but as so often great multitudes followed him and Jesus healed and ministered to them as was his habit. Now, people often ask for good reason why the Jews would usually go out of their way to travel south or north along the east side of the Jordan River. I'm going to put a map up. Sorry. Something happened with this. Let's try it again. There's the map. And this one. I drew arrows here on the map because I wanted you to see what I'm talking about. They would choose to go along the white arrows from Jerusalem. They would go downhill pretty much straight east to Jericho and the Jordan River. And then they would go up the east side of the Jordan River until they got to the Sea of Galilee. And either they'd go along the west or the east side of the Sea of Galilee if they were going up to Capernaum and Chorazin and points north like Tyre and Sidon and Damascus. That's what they would do on a regular basis. Instead of just taking a straight route right up from Jerusalem to the Galilee region. After all, it's more direct and it's much shorter to just travel along the roads directly between Jerusalem and the Galilee. In fact, it actually adds over 25% to the distance traveled to go directly from Jerusalem to Capernaum, for example, is about 90 miles, while the route from Jerusalem east to cross the Jordan at Jericho and then north to the southern tip of the Lake of Galilee and then either west or east along the shore of the, of the lake, then north again along the western shore to the lake of Capernaum, to, the, to Capernaum, is over 120 miles. So instead of going 90 miles, they chose to travel 120 miles. So why on earth do that? Why? Why did they do that? constantly, and most of them did that. Sadly, the answer is all too human. The reason is hatred, bigotry, prejudice, a strong belief that Jews are superior to Samaritans, 
whose territory they would have to cross if they took the more direct route. So instead of traveling those direct roads, drinking Samaritan water, eating Samaritan food, and staying several nights at Samaritan caravanseries, like little outdoor hotels that were protected, the Jews just stuck up their snobbish noses up in the air and took the lo much longer route. You see, because they hated the Samaritans, who they considered to be unclean half-breeds, as a result of the Assyrian captivity in 732 BC. That's when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and relocated many of their captives to other parts of their empire. In exchange, they would bring people from those farther parts of their empire and relocate them to Israel. That was their way of controlling the population of their empire. And so there was an ethnic mixture, which the Jews, of course, considered pollution of the purity of their heritage. Anyway, that's why Jesus and the multitude went that longer way. Not that Jesus was bigoted, but he was going with the crowds. As he always wanted to do, he always wanted to be ministering to them. So the multitude went that way, so did Jesus, but so did some Pharisees. As British theologian Adam Clark, who lived in the late 17 and early 1800s, as he said, quote, some followed Jesus to be instructed some to be healed, some because of curiosity, and some to ensnare him. It's from this latter group that we find the Pharisees, always following Jesus to see or hear something they could use to charge against him, including devising sneaky ways to trap Jesus, which is what they try to do here. Verse 3. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, is it, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? In order to understand what is really happening in this conversation, We'll take a close look at this verse, so we'll read it again. The Pharisees came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? First, we see that this is not an honest question. They weren't seeking to learn anything from Jesus. It was dishonesty. They asked it to test Jesus, to try to trap him in his answer. You see, at that time, divorce was a hot topic, and there were two opposing schools of thought. 
interpretations of the Old Testament verse, Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 4. We'll look at it in a minute. These two interpretations were given by two highly respected rabbis of the time. Rabbi Shammai, who taught a more strict and therefore unpopular interpretation, and Rabbi Hillel, who taught a more lax and popular interpretation. Rabbi Hillel, by the way, was the grandfather of Rabbi Gamaliel, who was the teacher of Saul of Tarsus, who we know as Paul, the apostle. But let's, let's look at these Holy Spirit-inspired words of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 4. I'm sorry, chapter 24, verse 1. When a man, here's, the, here's what God said through Moses. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. He goes on now and talks about the divorce and the aftermath of that. But you see, in Jesus' day, marriage wasn't only a sacred covenant, a sacrament, but it was also seen as a sacred duty, an obligation. It may sound strange to us, but if a man was still unmarried at the age of 20, except for rabbinic study of the law, he was seen as guilty of breaking God's command to be fruitful and multiply. Those commands are given three times in Genesis. It was even said that by not marrying and having children, a man was killing his own descendants and had lessened the glory of God on earth. The Jews of that day supposedly had a high view of marriage but that didn't expend to the women with whom Yahweh had said the men were to become one flesh. Jewish men actually had a very low view of women. A woman was often bought to be a wife, quotes, seen more as property than as partner, used for sex and childbearing to raise children work as a menial household servant, and then dismissed at the whim of the husband. Certainly this was not God's plan for marriage. This was not his plan for the man to be, quote from Genesis, to be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, which we just read. The men's low view of women meant that their alleged high ideal, high ideal of marriage was constantly seen 
as hypocrisy. But those compromises were made into man's law, not God's, mostly in line with Rabbi Hillel's very loose theology. Under his teaching, according to scholar Barclay and other scholars, quote, a man could divorce his wife if she spoiled his dinner, if she spun or, I mean, twirled, or went with unbound hair, or spoke to other men in the streets, or if she spoke disrespectfully of his parents in his presence, or if she was an argumentative woman whose voice could be heard in the next house. Another rabbi, Rabbi Akiba, who was a, a student of Hillel, even said that a man could divorce his wife if he found a woman whom he liked better and considered more beautiful. Thus, they were asking Jesus about divorce for any reason. Just for any reason. This was the really the essence of the debate between Hillel and Shammai. They both knew that God, through Moses, gave permission for divorce in Deuteronomy 24.1. But the debate focused on the question, what does uncleanness mean? A word that we just read, in fact, Jesus even quotes it. What does uncleanness mean? Here's what I found in the Brown Driver Briggs, Strong's, New American Standard and Theological Wordbook of the Old Testament, Concordances and Lexicons. It's Strong's number 6172 in the Hebrew. It's Erva. And here are some words used for its definition. Nakedness, nudity, shame, pudenta, which implies shameful exposure, nakedness of a thing or person, indecency, improper behavior, exposed, undefended, genitals, bare, indecent, undefended parts, literally, especially the pudenta, or figuratively, disgrace or blemish, uncleanness, private, personal parts of the body, especially the external sexual organs, repulsiveness. And one of the commentators said, Deuteronomy 24.1 is usually interpreted as strictly sexual in nature, shameful exposure. The word is used 20, uh, 54 times in the Old Testament. Most of them means nakedness. One time it means shame, another time unclean, another time uncleanness. So no wonder the most common translation is sexual immorality. In fact, Rabbi Shammai taught that 
uncleanliness meant sexual immorality and that this was the only valid reason for divorce. The school of Rabbi Hillel interpreted uncleanness to mean any sort of perceived indiscretion, even to the point where for some rabbis, burning a husband's breakfast was considered valid grounds for divorce. So when they went to Jesus, their question was testing him. In doing that, the Pharisees tried to get him to side with one teaching or the other. If he agreed with the lax school of Rabbi Hillel, it would mean that Jesus didn't take the law of Moses seriously. If he agreed with the strict teaching of Rabbi Shammai, then Jesus could easily become unpopular with the multitude of men who generally liked the idea of having access to an easy divorce, kind of like in the years of, of, of my youth, people would go steady. You know, they'd give them a ring or a necklace or something. The men would give to their girlfriend or the boys would give to their girlfriend. And that meant they were kind of attached visually. And then when they took back the ring or the necklace, that meant that they could go and go steady with somebody else. So it was very, very lax. It was very casual. But the men of that day liked the idea of having access to an easy divorce. And I'll just say to them, shame on them. They didn't really understand their own, their own God's word. So the Pharisees believed that they had Jesus hanging on the, as they say, a hordes of a dilemma. If he went either way, he would lose. But now we hear Jesus' response to their question, a question that was intended to trap him. Here it is, verses 4 to 6. And he answered them and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and that for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let not man separate. When Jesus said, have you not read? He was insulting these experts, scholars in the law of Moses. Have you not read what you're experts in? He was saying. See, the Pharisees were focused on talking about divorce and rabbinical theological opinions. But instead of taking their lead, Jesus pointed them all back to Scripture and biblical marriage. He began with the first marriage between Adam and Eve. And 
if we look at his methodology here, his emphasis on the scriptures and on marriage instead of divorce is really a good model for us as a wise thing to do whenever anyone tries to focus a discussion on fringe topics instead of central scriptural truths. Whenever you get into a debate with somebody about religious things, about biblical things even, but they want to focus on those fringe things, it's very wise to just pick up your Bible and say, have you not read? And then go to the scriptures to see what God directly says. By responding to their question, not from Shammai or, or Hillel, as they wanted him to do, but from Moses and the Spirit-inspired Scripture, our Lord confused their intent, and he took the argument where it belonged, on the Spirit-inspired Word of God. You see, when marriage is grounded in God's creation and his written word, focusing on the fact that he has made us and has specific ways that he intends for us to live, including sacred biblical marriage between one man and one woman for life, then it can't be treated as just a ceremonial occasion with a covenant that really means very little. When that's done, as it so often is then and today, both the institution of marriage and the culture in which it is become nothing more than cynical jokes and objects of derision. Jesus, again, says, He who made them at the beginning, quote, made them male and female. Well, that's important in today's world, isn't it? In quoting Genesis 1.27, Jesus made a strong and serious point that God made men and women different and that he brings them together in marriage. So Jesus clearly asserts God's authority over marriage. It is his institution, his sacrament, not man's. So his rules and standards and priorities apply. So when his so-called marriage that is not between one man and one woman for life, in covenant with God, is not marriage. Whatever it is, it isn't marriage. In fact, those other things that our culture is calling marriage these days, transgenders, homosexual, lesbian pairings, those things are, in fact, hideous abominations that directly spit in the eye of God. 
and defame his perfect word. Now, we need to remember those who engage in those things are blinded and deceived by our Satan-controlled culture. So we as followers of Christ must pray for and love them and show them in sincere love the error of their choices so as to draw them away from the kingdom of Satan and into the arms and kingdom of Christ. And for those of us who are married Christians, our marriages should show them, should demonstrate what God intends marriage to be. By bringing the issue back to scriptural foundation of marriage, where it belongs, Jesus made it clear that couples must abandon their single life. That's where it says a man shall leave his father and mother. And they should come together into a one flesh relationship with each other. That's a strong image, and God intended it that way. His law is not that a man could toss out his wife whenever he wants, but that he must instead forsake the primacy of his relationship to his parents, siblings, and all other relationships except to Christ in order to cleave to his wife, living one flesh. It's a strong phrase. Be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Back to creation, we see that men and women are very different, as we said. Yet they are joined together as one, completing and complementing one another as one flesh. In Genesis, God tells us that men and women are different and have always been from creation to now, and they will be on into eternity. Here are just a few examples of the differences in us, the differences between men and women as designed by our Creator. First, we have different sources of creation. Men were made from dust. Women were made from organic rib. We were created by different means. Creation, as I said, by God from dust or creation by God from a man's rib. We have different physical frames. Our skeletal structure is different. And we have different emotional needs. We have different sexual needs, impulses, and desires. We have different chemical and hormonal makeups. We have different kinds of emotions 
and different inherent priorities. We have been created by God for different physical and mental purposes. A couple of examples. Men are made to be protectors, to be engaged in physical activities, whether it's building and structure or fighting and defending. Women, God bless you, are made to bear children, to carry children for nine months and then go through that incredible experience of childbirth. I don't know any men who would have the fortitude to be able to do that. We have been created by God, as I said, for different physical and mental purposes. Our minds don't work the same. Maybe you've noticed that in your marriage. They don't work the same. We don't think in the same ways. Our bodies don't function in the same ways. Our instincts, even our God-given instincts, aren't the same. And I'm sure we could identify many more God-created differences. Of course, there's those exceptions. There are, there are women who do a lot of very man-like things, and there are men who do a lot of woman-like things. And I'm not talking about homosexuals. It's just the nature of the differences. But despite these fundamental creation-rooted differences between men and women, God calls a husband and wife to come together as one, as one flesh. And this process of things that are not alike coming together is part of God's great work in marriage, the work of sanctifying and completing, and so much more. It means so many things so that, in God's words, we complement one another. In fact, the Hebrew word used includes the concept of parallel, equal but different, side by side. And I personally find that, that part of that definition very refreshing. One flesh includes working out life together, parenting together, although, as we know, quite differently. It means sexual intercourse as a strong and permanent bonding for the marriage as one flesh. In fact, God, through the Apostle Paul, has strong words to that effect. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over over his own body, but the wife does. 
Do not deprive one another. He's talking about sex. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a, a limited fixed time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. God has a very clear understanding of our nature and our different natures. By actually studying and obeying God's word here in these verses and in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 to 33, married couples continually practice and experience the physical and emotional intimacy of one flesh that is a strong defense against any forces, whether demonic or cultural or from perceived self-interest, that work nonstop to break apart the one flesh of biblical godly marriage. As with everything in life, Sexual intimacy may not always be wanted, be desired, or be comfortable, but it is critically important for a healthy, one-flesh marriage, which is so necessary in the church today. If marriages don't have that, it weakens the church. Solid marriages support and actually make up solid churches, which we desperately need in this time when the nominal church is selling out in droves to Satan's evil schemes that are flooding our culture and polluting and poisoning every aspect of life. Unless the church stands strong in Christ. Scholar F.F. F. Bruce has written this regarding one flesh. He said the reference is primarily to the physical fleshly unity. But, and get this, but flesh in Hebrew thought represents the entire person and the ideal unity of marriage covers the whole nature. It is a unity of soul as well as of body, of sympathy, interest, and purpose. Personally, I really appreciate that perspective, and I confess I'm convicted by it. Jesus goes on, he says, what God has joined together Jesus reminded the Pharisees that marriage is spiritually binding before God. It is not merely a social contract. And since it is God who has joined, he expects man to honor what he has joined and to keep the marriage together, healthy and strong. That's why in, in every, man, every marriage where I have officiated, I speak directly to the entire gathering, charging them with their responsibility as the church 
to help the newlyweds be faithful to their biblical vows, to hold them accountable, and to pray for them. And again, there's a 20th century New Testament scholar and Anglican cleric, R.T. France is how he's known. He shares a strong understanding of the subject. He says, one flesh vividly expresses a view of marriage as something much deeper than either human convenience or social convention. And to see divorce, to understand that divorce is man undoing the word of God, that puts the whole issue in a radically new perspective. Man undoing the word of God. What a clarifying perspective. Understanding divorce as a direct offense to God as is ignoring, putting aside the strong aspects of one flesh in marriage. Jesus had a lot of very important things yet to say in his response, and there's more. But first we see that the Pharisees had a bit more to ask Jesus still trying to entrap him. In verses 7 and the beginning of verse 8, we read, They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce to put her away? Jesus said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. He didn't command, he permitted. Though these experts on the law, these Pharisees, incorrectly believed that Yahweh had commanded divorce when there was uncleanness. In fact, one saying among the rabbis of the day was, if a man has a bad wife, it is his religious duty to divorce her. Can you imagine that? When we all know that God repeatedly calls for reconciliation, when there are offenses, disputes, or any friction between people, including couples, these ignorant fools taught in direct opposition to the heart of God. And not only that, but they greatly confuse the difference between God commanding as opposed to him permitting. God never commands divorce, though he does permit it under certain limited circumstances. In fact, clearly, Scripture clearly tells us that God hates divorce. We find that in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. God hates divorce. He loves reconciliation. But the Pharisees incorrectly thought that Moses was promoting divorce, though the opposite is true. 
Knowing the sinful hearts of the people, his words were intended to control divorce and to strengthen marriage. Jesus tells them that it was only because of the hardness of their hearts that God permitted divorce. The ideal was a strong, one-flesh marriage where the marriage partners completed each other by molding their different natures, qualities, excuse me, and strengths. Molding their different natures, qualities, strengths, and weaknesses into one complete whole. Into one complete whole. One flesh. God's creation of men and women was such that each was incomplete without the other. Of course, there are certain exceptions to that. Both Jesus and Ed Paul allude to it. That's when people are called to a ministry of celibacy, to a, a calling of celibacy in order to focus more on worshiping the Lord and serving him. But that's very, very rare. Very, very rare. God created men and women such that each one is incomplete without the other. But because this ideal was largely unobtainable, God permitted divorce. Though again, he never requires it. He never requires it. Now, I'm afraid we'll have to stop here, but we will pick it up next week. We're right in the middle of verse number eight. Right in the middle. It's an inconvenient place to stop, but we're going to do that now. So Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your words. And in diving deep into these words, both of the Pharisees and of our Lord. Father, we come to some things that aren't normally talked about in groups. We come across some things that need to be discussed between couples. We come across some things that may be uncomfortable or even undesirable to obey but you've called us to obey you. Father, I pray that people who are married in the church would truly spend time reading, studying, and meditating on the words that we've shared out of 1 Corinthians and and Ephesians. But even more, Lord, that we would bring them before you as married couples whose goal is to live as one flesh, knowing the difficulties, knowing the the hardness of our hearts, 
knowing the tendency to be selfish and sinful. Father, I pray that we would bring ourselves before you to meditate and discuss with you the words that you have given. And doing so, Lord, that our marriages would be strong. And that in doing so, the church would become strong. Right now, we know it is weak, especially the Western church. But Lord, with strong marriages, with strong Christians, Father, I believe that we can have a strong church that will be powerful and that will be able to push back against the enemy in this time and truly, Lord, in all times. We know that the enemy hates marriage. We saw the damage he did to the Jews of Jesus' day. And we know the damage that he has done in our day. Knowing that divorce among Christians is just as common as divorce among non-believers to our shame. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work within us to bring us, your people, ever closer to the perfect model for marriage that you have presented in your word. We can only do that, Lord, with the Holy Spirit within us. So we pray, Lord, that you would guide us, that you have commanded us, and that by your Holy Spirit, Lord, by his strength, that we would obey you. And we pray for this, Lord, in Jesus' holy name. Amen.